All right, terrific. Uh, I do want to get going. I know people will uh, continue to drift in because this is a timely and important topic concerning uh, the newly announced uh, Russian oil cap, cap uh, price cap sanctions regime, which was announced on um, September 9th. Um, just by way of introduction, I'm Bruce Paulson. I'm a partner at Seward & Kissel, where I, among other things, advise on sanctions issues. Um, with us today are uh, Mike Lieberman and Eric Van Nostrand uh, of the Treasury Department. Uh, Mike is an Assistant Director for Enforcement at OFRAC. Uh, his previous positions at Treasury include Acting uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Global Affairs, Director for Russia, Europe, uh, Europe Russia, Iran, uh, Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing. Prior to Treasury, he was an associate at an unnamed major international law firm where he specialized in sanctions. And Eric is a senior advisor for, uh, advisor for Russia and Ukraine at the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Economic Policy. Uh, he conducts uh, economic analysis of policies related to the war in Ukraine with a focus on global energy market, markets and macroeconomic analysis. Prior to Treasury, Eric led sustainable investment re uh, research at BlackRock. So welcome, Eric and Mike. Um, uh, we're, it's, it's a great privilege to have uh, these government officials with us. What they'd like this to be, if I quote you correctly, is a session where we, or they, uh, educate the industry uh, about these new um, sanctions and new uh, preliminary guidance on the Russian oil price cap. Um, it's very interesting uh, to me as somebody who has worked in this area for uh, more than a dozen years. Um, it strikes me, and the, the, the word kept coming up uh, in a session this morning, uh, and the word was complex. Um, and back in the old days, all you had to deal with was uh, SDNs and, and uh, uh, malign actors in certain foreign nature, uh, nations. Um, you can't do business with them if you're a U.S. person. It's not perhaps as nuanced and complex as this new um, new regime, which to me um, um, seems to have sort of interesting countervailing policy considerations. And perhaps uh, Eric, um, you could walk us through sort of the broad policy uh, considerations that the U.S. government had, as well as the G7, in coming up with this new regime. Thank you very much, Bruce. Is my audio okay? Um, thank you to everyone for joining the panel and to the Capital Link team for organizing it. Um, it's great to be with you all. I think, you know, one, one clear message that we've had as this policy has been rolled out over the past couple weeks is that given the novelty of, of what we're trying to do from a macroeconomic stability perspective in the context of the war in Ukraine, it's really important for us to be engaging frequently and consistently with industry. Um, and we view this conversation as an important part of our engagement campaign this fall. So I'm very excited to lay out how we're thinking about the price cap policy broadly and also hear your comments and considerations. Once I talk a little bit about the economic logic behind what we're trying to achieve here, Michael walked through the, where the rubber really meets the road in terms of how we put this, um, it, you know, how we put this into practice. What I want to start with is what we're trying to accomplish, the problem that we view the price cap as solving. The goals of implementing a price cap on Russian oil are twofold. 
We want to both keep low-priced Russian oil flowing onto global markets and to reduce the Kremlin's revenues used to fund Putin's brutal war of choice. With the price cap, we're creating clear incentives for key actors in global oil markets, including Russia, oil importing countries, and market participants to maintain the flow of Russian oil. The price cap is designed to attack those two objectives at the same time, to keep the oil flowing while also denying windfall profits to the Kremlin. The key point to understand how this the price cap is intended to work is that it really only makes sense to think about a price cap in the context of Europe's six sanctions package, which is slated to be implemented on December 5th. On the 5th of December, the EU will ban the provision of maritime services to the Russian oil trade. As you all know, the EU and G7 countries really dominate the maritime services industry for seaborne Russian oil. They control about 90% of it. We think, you know, this is a well-intentioned policy to reduce the Kremlin's revenues in the context of the war. But in the absence of a price cap, banning the, banning the dominant provision of G7 and European maritime services to the Russian oil trade would, in our view, meaningfully reduce the flow of Russian oil onto global markets. That's the baseline against which we need to evaluate the price cap. And we view the price cap as an adjustment to that six sanctions package that is intended to let the oil flow. The goal of the price cap, again, is to allow that oil to flow, to keep energy affordable, but to do so in a way that does not undermine the six sanctions package's goal of denying revenue to the Kremlin. What we're doing mechanically is we're creating an exception to that ban on maritime services that's included in the European Six Sanctions Package, whereby we'll allow G7 countries and European countries to provide maritime services to the Russian oil trade as long as the oil is traded under a price cap. So relative to that six sanctions baseline, where no oil will be allowed to flow with G7 maritime services, we're creating space for oil to flow as long as it is traded below a certain price. The goal of this, again, is to keep that oil on the market, to keep energy prices affordable, while denying the Kremlin the windfall profits that would come from unrestricted trade. The next and perhaps obvious question is why Russia would agree to a capped price uh, set by Western authorities. Why would they would participate in that and sell at a below market price? This is, this is in our view, possible, and this is the goal of the policy, given the idiosyncrasies of the maritime services market in Europe. We know that G7 services control a large enough swath of the, of the, um, of the services trade around Russian exports, about 90% of the market, that we don't think Russia has viable alternatives to export that crude subject to services outside G7 authority in a meaningful way. I think other companies, other new services industries may pick up some of that trade on the margins, but not in a way that can replace all the oil that is poised to be displaced by the six sanctions package. Therefore, we believe, and we're structuring the policy such that Putin has a clear economic incentive to participate in the price cap to get some revenue for oil that would otherwise be shut in and lost to Russia. It's also important to remember that none of this changes the fact that the United States and the majority of G7 countries have banned the import of Russian oil themselves. We, the G7 will still not be buying oil made available by the price cap. 
but the main beneficiaries of the lower-priced oil will be large non-G7 economies like India, China, and Turkey, as well as developing countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Bottom line on the broad strokes here, and this is, this is frankly something that we, we worry has sometimes gotten a bit missed in some of the commentary on the policy, is this is about letting Russian oil flow relative to the baseline of the six sanctions package, but to do so at a capped price to deny Putin those windfall profits. So I'll pause there on the broad strokes and might pass to Mike to unpack how we're going to actually deliver on, a, deliver on all that. Thank you, Eric. So I'll just spend a few minutes detailing the implementation of this measure, the policy, on the U.S. side. I think one thing to note is that each country is going to be responsible for implementing its own measures. And on the EU side, they uh, would intend to issue something, of course, uh, on, on covering the entire set of member states there. But on the U.S. side, what uh, we plan to do, as Eric noted, is to prohibit the provision of services uh, with respect to the maritime trade of Russian uh, oil. But uh, permit, the ex permit the provision of those services with respect to transactions that involve purchases of Russian oil below the price cap. So that means that maritime service providers can continue to provide their services and do business as usual as long as the oil is purchased at that uh, cap or, or below. And the compliance obligations of this system really envision uh, something as straightforward as, as possible for industry, uh, which is a record-keeping and attestation process that's tailored to each party's role and that allows each party in the supply chain of seaborne Russian oil to continue to provide their services um, and to to receive information in the normal course of their business, attesting to the fact that the oil they're dealing with uh, was purchased at or below the cap. And so the way that the, the, way that the preliminary guidance has, is structured now is we envision a, basically a three-tiered model. Uh, the first tier involves those with direct access to price information. So those would be commodities brokers, refiners, and others who are purchasing directly or very close to directly uh, from, from Russia. And the idea there is that they would obtain uh, and retain and share as needed documents showing that the seaborne Russian oil was purchased at or below the cap. And that documentation can include things like invoices, contracts, or receipts, uh, proof of accounts payable, etc., things that they would normally obtain. The second tier envisions actors that may sometimes have access to price information, but maybe not necessarily always. Um, and that would include financial institutions, trade financiers, um, and, and actors similarly situated. Uh, and the expectation there is that they should, uh, when practicable, request, uh, retain, and share as needed information uh, relating to the price cap. And one thing that they would be able to rely on, and this is really key, is an attestation from their customer that the oil in which they're dealing uh, was purchased at or below the cap if they don't have uh, direct access themselves. And then the third tier of actors uh, are those like insurers who really don't have uh, ready and regular access to price information. And the idea there is that they would receive an attestation from their customers, from their insureds in particular, um, and to write that into the policies that they would provide. So, for example, as part of an annual insurance policy renewal process, 
they would include a provision requiring that uh, their insureds um, only do business or flow down uh, contractual clauses, ensuring that uh, any oil uh, that they're involved with, even if indirectly, is purchased at or below the cap. And that could cover the entire period of policies in place um, and, and could be instituted in contracts uh, as, they're, as they're renewed. So our preliminary guidance, which we uh, issued a couple of weeks ago, outlines that in a, in a handy chart um, that, that we hope is helpful. And uh, I just want to emphasize that the entire record-keeping and attestation process is really designed to create a safe harbor uh, for service providers uh, for liability from breach of the sanctions uh, in cases where they might inadvertently deal in uh, seaborne Russian oil that's purchased above the price cap due to falsified records or the uh, efforts by bad actors to uh, to make misrepresentations to them. So, for example, where a service provider without direct access to price information reasonably relies on a customer's attestation, uh, we're not going to hold that service provider liable uh, for any sort of sanctions breaches um, if they acted in good faith because of those who um, made material misrepresentations to them. Um, and can so, I ask you yeah, a quick please. question about that? I had a case years ago, a bankruptcy case, where our client, a bank, had relied on a very short one-page financial statement and alleged that it was fraudulent. And uh, Judge Blackshear in the bankruptcy court said, uh, yes, indeed, it was fraudulent. In fact, it's so fraudulent, you had no right to rely on it. So where does... I know this is preliminary guidance, but where does the line go to fall? What's an adequate attestation? Sure. So there's not a specific uh, form, and we realize that the attestation might not be a one-size-fits-all document across all segments of the maritime sector. Different players in the industry might be receiving these or might uh, make these um, in accordance with uh, what what makes sense for them. That's something that's actually in, in development with respect to uh, uh, how that exactly is going to to look. Um, but I will say that you know at the same time it doesn't. Um, it doesn't completely do away with the need to conduct regular due diligence. So, you know, reasonable reliance on attestation would be something that is acquired in the normal course from a customer with whom they've had um, dealings in the past. If that transaction matches um, similar transactions, there are no red flags of evasion. Um, and, you know, other due diligence practices that would normally be carried out continue to be carried out. So it's, it's a reasonable reliance, as I think, you know, reliance typically is, is considered uh, sort of no, you can't bury your head in the sand. At the same time, um, you know, that attestation, they would not be required to conduct their own um, confirmation uh, that the uh, price was purchased at that uh, level, for example, is, is the idea there. Tell us a little bit what red flags you have in mind. So we have red flags that we've talked about uh, in a number of other prior guidance that OPEC has issued. In, in 2020, we issued a maritime advisory, um, and there the focus was really on Iran, on North Korea, um, uh, Syria, uh, and evasion that occurred uh, through ships uh, providing uh, goods or services to those countries, from those countries, and a couple of the red flags that we uh, identified there included um, things like uh, turning off your AIS transponders, uh, irregular voyages, um, 
clearly uh, altered documentation. And it really depends on what sector of the industry you're, you're talking about, which red flags you would be uh, expected to consider. And the guidance actually goes into considerable detail with respect to that and breaks out um, specific best practices and specific uh, red flags that are applicable across all the different subsectors. So insurers, uh, charterers, ship owners, et cetera, each have their own section uh, of the advisory where we point to, to red flags. And we think a lot of those red flags are going to be um, applicable here as, as well. Um, and we're going to continue to provide additional red flags uh, when, we, when we issue guidance. But I think that, you know, maybe in this, in this context, specific red flags could be a reticence to provide price information at all or some sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, unusually favorable payment terms that indicate perhaps inflated costs, um, insistence on opaque or circuitous uh, payment methods, um, maybe dealings with newly formed uh, intermediaries or parties, uh, especially in high-risk jurisdictions, uh, abnormal shipping routes. Uh, you really know the industry better, um, but these are the things that we're thinking of, and they're actually the sort of things that we're here today partly to hear from you about uh, what we should be on the lookout for in terms of providing uh, broader broader advice. Yeah. This is supposed to be a conversation, so people feel feel free to yeah. You got a mic coming your way. The industry is not monolithic. Is it your intention? Is it the agency's intention to secure input and then issue further, more specific guidance on on what is required? Is it, and if that's the case. What fora are you going to be getting additional information and intake from yeah. the industry? And then I have a follow-up question. Thank you, yeah. And um, Eric here can speak to that as well. But we are actively engaging with many different as, uh, participants in the industry. Uh, we did that on the front end of the preliminary guidance, and it's part of the reason why I'm here today, part of the reason I look forward to your questions. Um, and we're having a series of conversations with different players in the industry that are relevant to the price cap mechanism and to how it functions. So I think that channels to uh, provide feedback, you know, certainly questions feedback here today, but also through uh, major trade associations. We're looking forward to speaking with um, you know, ship owning associations um, and, and, and similar uh, types of groups. Uh, we've already started to do that. We've spoken with traders. Um, we've spoken with um, other major oil firms and the like. And so um, I think that through your association would be ideal, but certainly, uh, you know, if you don't feel like you have a, a ready channel, you can reach out to the organizers of this conference who we've been in touch with, and we'd be happy to uh, try to organize a way to uh, receive your, your feedback. And something that we are really actively uh, interested in receiving. So, so please don't be shy. Uh, so Michael and Eric, so uh, come December, of course, uh, the import of Russian Federation oil and refined products is already banned here. Banned in the U.S. And yeah. come December, it'll be banned in, in, throughout the year. So we're talking, right. we're talking about the flow of that oil to every other part of the world except the EU, right? That's the flag right. Of the vessel doesn't matter. If, but the ownership of the vessel, I mean, if we're talking, if you're, this would not apply to a Brazilian owner. Of a Panamanian flag vessel, or would it? 
Well, the prohibition on the services would apply to U.S. persons or to foreign persons that somehow cause a U.S. person to commit a violation of that prohibition. And that actually maybe takes me to kind of just describing quickly OFAC's jurisdiction, which does apply to U.S. persons, persons in the United States and U.S. citizens wherever located, as well as some specific circumstances, foreign persons who, as I said, will cause, usually by misleading a U.S. person, to commit a violation. Broadly speaking, OFAC sanctions are strict liability. You don't have to have had reason to know. You don't have to have intended to violate the sanctions. The way we enforce that, though, is typically through a method that takes those sorts of things into account. And we don't go after people who have been misled uh, and who acted in good faith and who are somehow tricked into committing a violation. So the application of the prohibition would be on the on the U.S. person and potentially, you know, a foreign person. And there will be a parallel provision coming out of the EU subsequent to this, the current tranche? Similar. Their ban would be on EU uh, nationals. Um, they don't have that sort of foreign causing element to their regime, but um, that, that's the idea. The, the, the prohibition would be on EU service providers who would be insuring or chartering or somehow providing services to the trade. Because if you look at their council regs and the jurisdiction of those, there's no causing it. That's a, diff that's a distinction between the U.S. and EU regimes, broadly speaking, and applicable here as well. So just on the causing liability question, if that Brazilian ship owner, um, um, say, knowingly carry oil that uh, was above the price cap uh, and the payment was in U.S. dollars um, and went through U.S. New York money center banks uh, who were then potentially exposed to liability, the Brazilian ship owner could be liable for causing that violation. Is that right? That's correct. And we have a number of cases, if you're interested, sort of with that same fact pattern. In that fact pattern, you know, we would not go after the U.S. person unless they really had reason to know somehow that the sanctions were being violated. Okay. Maybe, Eric, can you tell us a little bit about the, the compliance uh, burdens that are upcoming? I know we're talking about December 5th and February 23rd, which are both really around the corner. And I expect you guys have a lot of getting up to speed to do, uh, to do as well. But what, what, what do uh, members of this community, ship-owning, ocean carriers, uh, need to do from a compliance point of view um, to be ready? Well, I think I let me differentiate between the December and February dates from a from a kind of policy perspective. But then I might kick it back to Mike on compliance specifically, if that's all right. Um, but the key difference, as many of you likely know, is that the sanctions, the services ban, um, a part of the six sanctions package, um, applies to crude oil starting in December, but to refined products starting in February. Um, the price cap is going to mirror that. Again, the key point here is we're thinking of the price cap as something of a release valve on the six sanctions package to encourage that oil to flow. So we'll, we'll see the crude oil price cap implemented at the same time in December as the six sanctions package, um, as we will with the, with the refined product cap in February. And just with respect to the, you know, again, we are working to design a compliance regime that is going to um, impose a, a minimal additional burden on, on industry because in keeping, in keeping with the larger objective of uh, allowing the oil to continue to flow. Uh, and so we want to 
construct something that works. And what we've hit upon is this attestation process where you can rely in good faith on your customers' claim to you, basically, that uh, their dealing in that oil was purchased at or below the cap. Um, the reliance on, uh, you can rely on documents obtained in the normal course of business. We're not asking for uh, you know, extra due diligence above and beyond what you would be conducting uh, in the normal course. And then this, uh, you know, the, the receipt and uh, uh, keeping of the attestation mm -hmm. relevant records for uh, a period of five years, um, you know, we hope is not going to be uh, an inordinate uh, additional burden. How will the cap be set? How, how are you going if you have any indication about how and what what will be the methodology of setting the cap? So the process for setting the cap will be a consultative process among the G7 and the, the broader coalition of countries that sign on to the price cap, um, which right now includes Australia. Um, so I can't get ahead of that specific process, but I think if you keep in mind the goals of what the price cap is intending to do, which is both incentivize Russia to sell oil under the cap, um, but also maintain a you know, meaningful discount to market prices um, in terms of the revenues that Putin is, is receiving, I think the consultative process is likely to weigh those among, among other factors. What, what is going to be... We are... Just to be very practical, we are owners of ships carrying crude oil. So I'm very interested and we are uh, very keen on following sanctions and we respect all that and 100%. So let's say we, uh, Chevron, for example, and it's an example which is very specific, Chevron orders us to take our ship to Novorossiysk and take a cargo of crude oil and Chevron attests to the price, this surprise. Who is going, how shall we as ship owners know that the price is up above or below the, the cap? We should know. Uh, well, the cap will be public. Uh, and who is yeah. going, public in what way? Who is going to tell us? Is it the IMO? Is it, uh, you know, somebody needs to, on a website or somewhere, post on a daily basis or weekly basis that this is a cap applicable for that period of time. So we know that if our ship takes the vessel and the ship, mind you, the ship is going to sail from, let's say, from wherever it is, one month ahead of time to go to the horses, take the car. At what time will the cap be, uh, what, what cap, if it changes over time? Yeah. The cap will certainly be publicized in advance of the implementation of the six sanctions package, um, but we can't give you a specific date until that consultative process proceeds. Um, but it will certainly be publicized. And, and I think uh, readily available to all those yeah. in the sector. I don't think it will be hard to find. Um, you know, and certainly our approach to sanctions enforcement in, in general, you know, it's, it's not to play gotcha. I think it's been clear from, from my remarks. And if you look at our enforcement guidelines, that's not how we enforce the sanctions. And if you were to reasonably rely on, say, Chevron's attestation to you, if you weren't on the front lines of that purchase, that they purchased it at or below right. the cap, you're just carrying, you're, you're a service provider in that, in that circumstance, right? So there you'd be able to, you know, you would be a, a, a tier two or tier three service provider there able to rely on Chevron's attestation and, and they will certainly know what the price gap is. So 
is, is the price price cap going to you know the oil market changes every every minute uh, is, is is the cap something that's going to fluctuate um, on a regular basis, daily basis, weekly basis? Um, it will certainly be subject to revision by the coalition of countries as uh, as market conditions evolve. Um, just to, to clarify on, on OFAC versus EU on this. So if I understand it uh, as it stands now, uh, if uh, a Greek private owner is carrying Russian crude to uh, uh, to India uh, under the cap, uh, then that would be fine for a, the UK insurance provider. But if the tanker owner was using uh, let's say Greek commercial or technical services, that would be services provided out of an EU country. And as the EU sanctions stand right now, they don't they don't have a cap, right? So there's a conflict. Well, I think the idea is that they would adopt a cap similar to ours. And this has been announced at the G7 level, and I believe that the EU is working uh, okay. to implement this so that it's complementary and they, they mirror each other and that you wouldn't have that sort of situation. But Yeah, the cap is structured as an exception to the six, or six sanctions package. Um, so this will involve the reopening of that package um, pursuant to the G7 announcement. That's right. Uh, just to follow up on one of the earlier questions, uh, it does take a ship. It could take a month uh, to get to the port of pickup um, or the port of discharge. And the question then is, since the cap fluctuates uh, for purposes of enforcement, uh, at what point do you test whether there is compliance or not? Is it at the point of time at which the contract is made, or is it at the point of time at which uh, delivery of the cargo is taken? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think uh, Eric certainly weighed in if you have thoughts. I mean, I think the idea is that the purchase price paid to Russia uh, or the uh, you know, most immediate uh, seller of that oil be at or below the cap at any point, and that carries on through the through the through the supply chain. Um, so it's at the time of the purchase of the oil. I think is how we would envision it. Um, at the time, at the time that it's paid for, and if the cap were to shift in, in the meantime, you know, we'd have to sort of look at sort of what the circumstances were there. Yeah. So uh, my question is: So if China is importing most of Russian crude oil today, like, um, so we're going to take an attestation from the Chinese national oil companies that they're observing a price cap that did they participate in setting? And, and then how are you going to keep, uh, like, you know, that whole thing like with the ship owner? If it's not his fault, they lied on an attestation, are you, how are you, are you saying to insurance companies you can't do anything? Because the insurance companies are currently pulling insurance right now for ships that are doing legal trade. Mm-hmm. Well, an attestation from a, a Chinese customer would be... Uh, you know, we would consider that a reasonable uh, thing to rely on if there were no. But what's other, the recourse if they lie? Other re- red flags. Well, our enforcement is going to focus on that Chinese actor, and if we see evasion on a wide scale by 
bad actors in third countries that are continuing to import Russian oil, then I think we'll be taking a hard look at what we do. Um, and there are different mechanisms for that. I mean, it's not just sanctions enforcement. There are other types of responses that can be taken. So I think we'll be looking at that. But what I think what we would want to convey to, to you and to the maritime community writ large is that you know if you are hoodwinked by a Chinese customer uh, who's just flat out misleading you, um, and you you know have done your normal KYC and nothing else sort of stands out um, to suggest that you know you, you really you know we're just kind of putting your head in the sand, then we're providing a safe harbor, and I, that's not a term that we at OFAC you know, use very loosely, but we are providing a safe harbor for participants in the maritime uh, seaborne uh, oil trade uh, for, for, this, uh, for these purchases uh, under this policy. Would, would the vessel owner have to show that they were legitimately within the safe harbor? Would they have to demonstrate compliance step policies, that sort of thing? How would it work? Yeah, I mean, I think if, you know, if there were a situation, I'm just going back to how we enforce our sanctions, broadly speaking, you know, I think if there were a situation where a ship owner were told one thing and it turns out that something else was happening, uh, you know, I think we'd take, a, we'd take a good look at that situation. Again, you know, the ship owner who's acting in good faith, the service provider who's acting in good faith, is not going to be the target of our enforcement efforts. Um, <laughs> that was Mr. Bradley's awesome fault. ringtone. That's a good one. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we 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 would look at uh, a, a range of factors. You know, was there reasons? No. Was it a willful violation? You know, were they trying to cover it up? Um, you know, was the firm a sophisticated one that had the resources to conduct adequate due diligence and simply failed to do so? Was it a rogue employee? Um, you know, what was the size of the shipment? All the circumstances that sort of inform our sanctions enforcement response more broadly would be applicable here. And I just want to really just kind of emphasize that because the uh, our approach to enforcement is to um, enforce cases where we are really, uh, you know, finding egregiousness, where we're finding willfulness, uh, where we're finding some sort of industry practice that is at odds with the objectives of the sanctions regime, and we want to call attention to that. Um, you know, we're not playing gotcha uh, for technical violations. And if you look at, or, well, you can't see our non-public actions, but I'll tell you today that they are, you know, 95% resolved non-publicly, which means without a fine. Um, and if you look at the sanctions, the enforcement actions that we have taken, which are on our, our website, you'll see that there's always some kind of, there's a you know, real red flag there, there's recklessness, there's willfulness, there's some element of um, you know, misconduct that we feel it's important to call out. And so, you know, I think that the industry by and large really is focused very much on, on compliance. Um, you know, we have engagements with them, and we, 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 we see the investments that are being made. Um, and so, you know, we would look at it certainly through through that lens, and, and not be trying to go after you know folks who are who are trying to abide by what is a very complex uh, set of uh, expectations, and made more complex by this new uh, price cap policy. Just the one follow-up to the question is: like, How are you ensuring that there's an orderly free market in terms of access to this discounted Russian oil? Like, what's to prevent China from just going to Russia and say, "I'll take all of it"? at the discounted price, and no one else gets any of it. Yeah, so this, this is an important question that I think goes to our metric of success here, which is that, keep in mind the goals we started with in the process, 
if this oil is trading at meaningfully below market prices, then that is something that we see as a desired outcome. So we're, we're not taking a, um, you know, we don't have a strong preference up front where the specific discounted oil is going, as long as that oil is flowing and therefore keeping downward pressure on global markets. wants to and has always been cooperative. Yeah. Um, but there are a million granular questions that I'm getting every day. Uh, and I, you know, I mean, and so is Bruce. Um, where, I mean, for example, I, I'm not speaking on behalf of classification societies, but think of the classification societies. These are the guys that certify the safety of ships. They class them. Uh, an oil tanker, uh, you know, has a small casualty, a, ca a classification society has to send a surveyor uh, in Indonesia, Malaysia, or in the, to go and inspect a repair. Does that, does that surveyor then have to go get an attestation? I mean, this is the type of granular stuff that we're dealing with. How does that work? Well, I certainly appreciate the question. I'm afraid I won't have an answer for you today. I think if you're repairing a ship, you know, and there's no sort of proximate nexus to a Russian oil transaction, you know, I'm not sure we would consider that the provision of services to uh, uh, to, to facilitate the sale of Russian seaborne oil. Um, if that ship is used exclusively for that purpose, you know, maybe that's an interesting fact pattern. Um, I can't really provide a, an answer to that today, but I would just say those sorts of questions are very much the ones that we, we want to hear, and I appreciate you raising it, and certainly um, if there are others like that, and it sounds like there are a million of them, um, you know, we want to hear that because we want to be able to account for that and to be able to answer these sorts of questions uh, either in the follow-up guidance that we're planning to issue or in the FAQs. And I will just say this, too. You know, since the invasion, we've issued uh, well over 100 FAQs in response to situation, the situation uh, as it's evolved, uh, including uh, as a response to industry questions and concerns. And so this is uh, going to be, you know, very likely an iterative process, and we want to provide as much clarity and guidance as we can. So, you know, those sorts of questions are very valuable. Bruce, just one more, and that's it for me. <laughs> but Jovi's got a question. <laughs> um, you described, Eric, you described um, the price cap to, and, and, and this uh, package that we're putting together as a relief valve, your words, uh, for the, uh, six uh, the six rounds of sanctions. But there have, there's no equivalent to that in the U.S. We're not providing a relief valve to our sanctions because we're not prohibiting service providers, correct? So am I right about that? We are. We are. Uh, and and that's, that's part of how the policy is going to be constructed. There is not currently a ban on the provision of services to facilitate Russian seaborne but oil, but there will be under this policy. Jovi? Yeah, thanks, Bruce. Uh, just recognizing, uh, Mr. Benostrand, uh, recognizing, and maybe this is a question really for the uh, economists, uh, but recognizing the fungibility of oil, yep. um, if the Chinese buy all of the Russian oil at the below the target price, is there any way to prevent the Chinese then from reselling the oil at a hefty profit? 
the, so the way we think about that, so that is an issue we're thinking about broadly. Um, the, keep in mind that the way, we're, the way we're thinking about these flows are ensuring that there, there are two goals, right? There, there are volumes on the market and there are revenues to the Kremlin. And at the end of the day, those are the two variables we're focused on. The, you know, one key point that I think has been overlooked in the past couple of weeks is we're already seeing evidence um, that the, just the threat of this policy is working in terms of driving Kremlin behavior and that there's been a lot of reporting in the past couple months of Russia offering very steeply discounted long-term contracts um, to buyers in various parts of the emerging world in particular, um, you know, sometimes explicitly for the consideration of not joining the price cap, but clearly due to fears of downward market pressure on prices. So those are, those are the two metrics we're focused on. In the back. Thanks a lot. I was actually back to the sixth sanction package again for the Europeans. How much are you actually expecting that to open up again? Because as of now, from you know 5th of December, we're going to have a blockage in crude, and uh, 5th February is going to be blockage in product. And basically, we will be allowed to take uh, the oil out um, if it goes to third countries, but it's being very constrained by the P&I clubs. Um, also, there is sort of this extra remark that needs to be deemed strictly necessary. So there is a lot of stuff still preventing this, even we get the, the price cap in. So how much of the six sanction package are you hoping will actually be opened up? If you want the Russian oil to, to basically flow, because that is what you say the ambition is. And I can't see that working with the price cap alone. Yeah, so what the G7 announced was an intention to implement this exception to the six sanctions package, which is to basically say the services ban still applies as in current law unless there is an attestation that the oil is traded below a certain price. So that's the, that's the edit that is currently being made in EU conversations to introduce that exception for oil traded below the price level. And that's the only piece that needs to change. We have a couple more minutes. Um, I'll throw one out there. Um, you talked a little bit about what happens, or you replied, Mike, to a question about you know what happens if you were suckered by the uh, um, um, shipper of the cargo, and and um, which brings to mind you know issues of uh, voluntary self-disclosure. And there's also in the, in the preliminary guidance this notion if you if you encounter. Uh, evasion or, or circumvention of sanctions to the obligation to reject and report, uh, which seems to be in a similar vein. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, about that. Sure. Thank you, Bruce. Um, so, broadly speaking, you know, we really uh, would look to industry to uh, you know provide us with uh, indications of evasive activity. Um, and when uh, you know, so we. we Appreciate leads like that as a general matter. Let me just let me just start with that. Um, you mentioned voluntary disclosures. So um, many of our cases are the result of voluntary self-disclosures, and what incentivizes people to make a voluntary disclosure to OFAC is the very significant amount of mitigation that uh, companies receive when they do so. Um, if indeed you know it comes to pass that a penalty remains the appropriate outcome for a case that's been voluntarily disclosed, the amount of the penalty is really uh, a very small fraction of what it could otherwise be. Um, and in many cases, again, cases that are voluntarily disclosed to us do not result in any penalty at all or any kind of other public action. 
Um, and so there are a lot of reasons to, to self-disclose. Uh, and in particular here, you know, we would welcome that because uh, we want to understand efforts by bad actors to exploit this mechanism uh, and to evade the, the price cap. Um, so that's something that we encourage, broadly speaking, and I think would be uh, especially valuable uh, in, in, in this case. And I'm sorry, the second part of the question was um, reject and report. Reject and report. Um, yeah, and so uh, there's a distinction in how we expect um, folks in industry to deal with uh, the funds or property that comes into their possession, uh, depending on the sanctions regime at play. Uh, when you're dealing with an actor that is, that is blocked, so Bruce mentioned at the outset, you know, it used to be simple, right? You just had to not do business with uh, people on the list. Um, the expectation is that if you come into possession of funds from them, you have to block that and segregate it out and just keep it to the side. Uh, and this is typically an issue for banks, really. Um, and they have to put it in a separate interest-bearing account and just not touch it. Um, similarly for property, although it's a little bit more complicated when you're dealing with, with chattel or real property. Um, and when we talk about reject as opposed to blocking in this context and the distinction between uh, that's why we talk about rejection here. It's it's not that you have to block any property that would happen to come into your possession, um, but rather, really, you just have to not do the business. Uh, and uh, alongside the obligation to block property is a is an obligation to report to OFAC that you have that property. Uh, so here, the obligation is simply to not do the business, but to report to OFAC the fact that you rejected that business. And that can come in, in uh, you know, a simple uh, email. There are forms that banks have, um, but um, you know, it's something that we want to know about. And so that's why that is written in there. All right, I think we are out of time. So I'd like to thank Capital Inc. I'd like to thank, thank the panelists for this very interesting discussion. And I'm sure this is going to be a uh, long-standing conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you all. Thank you. Really would love to, you know, really do want to hear questions from your clients or you know yeah. help us yeah. inform this. It's a great question to see if we don't know Yeah, intimate world. Yeah, but deep in the streets, <laughs> you know. You know, I apologize. I have to run to my call. I just want to do it. Well, John had too many questions. <laughs> and his phone. <laughs>
This is my colleague, Noah Zari. Oh, hey, how are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. My pleasure. Hope it's useful. Yeah, it's a good question. Sure. There is a question about sales in China and resale at a better rate higher than. It's a great question. Um, so to protect against evasion, uh, the price cap does carry through the entire transaction chain until the oil is landed and pays customers. And at that point, the price cap disappears. That's the idea. You know, we're going to make that clear. Um, but you know, if we were to allow for you know, just the first purchaser to uh, you know, buy a commercial cap and then sell it on at a higher price, you just introduce that evasion opportunity. Um, and you know, then you know, it just provides too many opportunities for kickbacks back to Russia. And so that's why the price cap has to carry through the entire you know, seaborne transaction chain. So, the second Yeah. 
No, it can't. It can't. Um, you know, I think um, that's certainly that's what it says. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you know, sometimes you know they're not able to provide a clear response, or they take much too much back and, and forth uh, to get something clear. Uh, so sometimes then what they will do is they'll say, "Hey, listen, we're getting a lot of questions on this subject or that subject."